Howdy everyone, welcome back to the Based on History podcast. As always, I'm your host, John Nidick, and we're going to start this episode off, as usual, with the segment of Things John Got Wrong. This is going to be dealing with the Gangs of New York episode. Now, I didn't necessarily get something wrong, but if you did notice something that I got wrong, let me know. We'll add it to the next one. But there is something that I forgot to talk about in the episode that I meant to that I obviously didn't. And that has to do with the actual streets that make up the five points. And we talked in the episode, we talked about the history and the development and how it led to an area to be conducive to the Irish street gangs and the native street gangs and, and things like that. And how it developed from the beginning through the time period of the movie and on and on until the modern time. But I didn't talk about the actual streets, so we're going to cover that now. Now, you might think that a place called the Five Points is made up of five streets, and this is largely due to, in the movie, they list off five streets, and we'll get to that in a second. But really, the Five Points is made up of three streets, two cross streets and one that dead ends into the Five Point area. These three streets are called Orange Cross and Anthony Street. Later on, they were renamed to Baxter, Park, and Worth. And then over time, because of the development and the construction and just, you know, the history of Manhattan, all that remains today of the original five points, or the streets that make up the five points, is the intersection of Baxter and Worth. And that's kind of on the corner of what is now Chinatown in New York City. Now, in the movie... When Daniel Day-Lewis's character, you know, Bill the Butcher, is talking to Boss Tweed and they kind of make their alliance about him being muscle for Tammany Hall. And then it jumps to the firehouse scene where, they're, where they fight on the street to illustrate this kind of alliance. Bill the Butcher names the five streets that in the movie make up the five points. And he lists them as Mulberry, Worth, Cross, Orange, and Little Water. Now, all of those streets are streets, but Mulberry and Little Water are not part of the five points. They're a couple blocks off. And then Worth, Cross, and Orange are names of streets that make up the five points, but he's combining the names of streets from different time periods. So, he's he's listing, and I guess the reason they do this is because he is illustrating the five points as a fist. And so it fits better in his little analogy if each finger of his fist is represented by a street that makes up the five points, that when he closes it, he can direct that power and influence wherever he wants. That's the only thing that I can come up with that why they get this history wrong, because... It's a pretty easy check. There are historical websites. There are historical books. There are non-historical websites like Wikipedia that, that get this information correct for amateur historians like myself and literally anybody can just do a quick Google and get the history right. Yet they change it for the movie for this fist analogy scene. So that's a little frustrating. Not too big of a deal from the movie's perspective. Those streets all existed. We get the point. You know, the, the naming of the streets doesn't change the story. But technically it's historically wrong. And 
that really covers it for the things John got wrong segment of, of this episode. Like I said, if you notice something I got wrong, let me know and we'll cover it on the next episode, regardless of what episode you caught or wh- how long ago it was. Let me know and I'll talk about it on the on the next one. So without further ado, we'll start uh, this episode covering Black Hawk Down. Adios. This episode is brought to you by Alexis Night Photography. Alexis is an award-winning lifestyle brand, and wedding photographer based in the Cotswolds, England, specializing in headshots, family shoots, and event photography. Alexis has over 20 years experience. You can find her work and contact her for all your photography needs at alexisknight.co.uk. That's alexis, K-N-I-G-H-T dot C-O dot U-K. We are also brought to you by Design Weaver Textiles. Based in the heart of the Cotswolds, Philippa Weaver of Design Weaver Textiles is a hand-tufted rug designer and maker with a passion for British craftsmanship. With 20 years of experience designing carpet for high-end hospitality, she is uniquely suited to bring a fully bespoke design and make service to you, taking care at each stage to provide a beautiful and truly unique work of art to your interior landscape. You can find her on Instagram at Design Weaver Texts. Again, that's at Design Weaver Texts. We are also brought to you by Vanguard Cattle. Vanguard is a small, family-owned beef operation located in the heart of Texas. Their primary focus is on registered Santa Gertrudis cattle for superior genetics, bull and female replacement for commercial cattlemen and meat production. Vanguard's family roots date back to the days prior to the Republic of Texas. They take much pride in offering strong, sound genetics and beef to other Texas families. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook at at Vanguard underscore cattle or via email at vanguardcattle at gmail.com. Once again, that's at vanguard underscore cattle, or via email at vanguardcattle at gmail.com. You're listening to the Based on History podcast. to the Based on History podcast. As always, I'm your host, John Nidick. Joining me, my wife, my beautiful wife, <laughs> Alexis. Hi, everyone. And today we're going to be discussing the movie Black Hawk Down. And as usual, we'll talk a little bit about the movie and the cast and things like that. And then we'll we'll get into the historical story and what they got right and what they got wrong. And and we'll go go from there. So, Alexis, you had thought you'd seen this movie before but as we were watching it it turned out you actually hadn't seen the movie so it was the first very first uh experience of black hawk down for you and i could tell it was pretty intense and powerful from your perspective as we were watching so tell me a little bit about 
the very first. I mean, it's been so long since I've seen a movie that we um, that we'll cover over on this podcast that I will have seen for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was I was shocked by how good it was. I didn't realize. I think I had in my head that it was an older movie, um, and I, yeah, I thought it was really realistic I don't know whether you're going to tell me whether it was realistic or not but I really loved it I thought it was a very good war movie and well, probably put it up there in my with my top war movies now so I mean it, so realistic and historically accurate are different things mm-hmm. right Saving Private Ryan's a fictional movie but it's mm-hmm. very realistic and this movie is obviously very realistic and for the most part it is it's pretty accurate historically accurate as well they do get some things wrong we'll talk about that but overall overall the the main story and what happens is very accurate so but yes it's very realistic it is saving private ryan war quality mm-hmm. of a yes. movie just in a more modern era than a world war mm-hmm. ii setting i i really liked watching it and being like every time somebody popped up another actor that I knew I was like oh and I'd point at him and he'd be like "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh um loads of them and obviously like what is it 20 years old ish yeah it came out in 2001 they're all 20 years younger looking and they Um, look they look it young Tom Hardy young Orlando Bloom young I don't know what his name is from Game of Thrones the, the oh uh, yeah Nikolai Costa Waldet Wald, uh, uh, he's yes. Danish or Finnish or Swedish or Norwegian or something like that yeah. <laughs> he, he's from one of the Scandinavian countries and they have uh, for us he their played, names he are hard the, to um, one of the Delta snipers and he played Gary Gordon right yeah he played Delta sniper Gary Gordon uh, I'm trying to think now I just know that the cast was huge I'm trying to remember yeah we can yeah we can kind of just go through the the cast uh You've got Sam Shepard, who plays the Gen- General Garrison, mm-hmm. who just passed away either last year or the year before, okay. and he's amazing. Um, General Garrison, the character he portrays is from Texas, and Sam Shepard just kind of has that southern kind of air about him. Mm-hmm. So he And he also is well-respected actor, well-respected man, and so he has that kind of authority as a veteran actor to portray that role with all of these younger actors underneath him in the movie to kind of give him that kind of, not only the sense that he's portraying a, a person of authority, but you've got all these young actors looking up to him while they're filming yes. where you can really see how they res- respect him when they yeah, were there. He was, he was good in it. You've got Tom Sizemore playing Colonel Danny McKnight, who he's also, he's the, um, excuse me, he's the sergeant. In Saving Private Ryan. Okay, is he the one that goes, um, is next to the driver in one of the Humvees? Yes, yeah, okay, he's the yeah. one who's like cussing under his breath the whole time while they're. Yeah, he gets shot and he gets shot in the neck. Jugular, yes, yeah, that's Tom Sizemore. Him. He's like the second in command uh-huh. under Tom Hanks okay. in Saving Private Ryan. And he's in a bunch of other movies as well, but these two are probably his. Mm-hmm. His most famous movies. Oh, and Ewan McGregor. Yeah, you got Ewan McGregor Josh in there. Hartnett. Josh Hartnett. He's obviously on the poster. He's he plays Sergeant uh, Staff Sergeant Eversman, who's kind of the you know the the, the movie it has a just unbelievably breadth of mm-hmm. scope of what's going on, but you can tell from the promo and everything 
that Sergeant Eversman and played by Josh Hartnett is the kind of focal point right. of yeah. of the movie. Yeah, you got young Tom Hardy. Mm-hmm. You've got I don't know his name, but he's the Scottish guy. He was in Train Spotting with yeah. Ewan McGregor. Yeah, the one he, who was who went deaf. Yeah, the one who went deaf. Yeah. He's he has a, a role in uh, Pearl Harbor. He's he has a small role in Snatch. Um, who else is who else? Uh, Eric um, Bana, who plays yes. the kind of one of the main Delta oh, he Four. He's a great character, and um, the guy that was the one of the Delta leaders. I don't know what his position his mm-hmm. rank would have been. Um, with, uh, William Fitchner. Oh yes, William Fitchner. Yeah, he. I thought he was really good. Yes, he's one of my favorite characters. I, I love all of the Delta characters. They're right. all super cool. Yeah, he's in Armageddon. He's in a lot. He's in all of the Jerry Bruckheimer movies. He's kind of, kind of. He's kind of like that guy that you see in a lot of things, but no one <laughs> knows his name, kind of a thing. But he's mm-hmm. kind of everywhere. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what I remember him. Was he in? No, it wasn't. Wasn't Ghost? Was it? I'm trying to remember what I, I've seen him in. So he is one of the NASA pilots in Armageddon. Okay, that's which what is really a, I'm thinking. I was just trying to think of a, of like yeah. a really big movie that you would that you would have seen him in. I think I've seen him as like baddies in movies. He he does play some some mm. bad guys in some movies. Um, who else do we have in the in the movie? Uh, we said Orlando Bloom. Yeah, yeah, Orlando Bloom. This is one of his first movies. I was shocked by how short of a um, role he had in it. Yeah, this so that's when I when I said was that Orlando Bloom's character that fell out of the helicopter because I just thought there's no way that he would be finished that quickly. Yeah, when you when you when this movie came out, Orlando Bloom was not as big of a star right, yet, okay. and so when you go back and you watch it now, and you're like, oh my goodness, that's Orlando Bloom, and yeah. then five minutes later he's he's out. he's out, and you're like, oh, well, mm-hmm. buy Orlando Bloom, <laughs> uh, but he is. He's a kind of central part of the story, his character, you know, and how he falls out of the helicopter, mm-hmm. which kind of doesn't really start the things going wrong necessarily. They're not like linked together, mm-hmm. but it's the, first disaster. it's the first kind of thing that goes wrong on the road to all of the things that go wrong. And also to kind of show them that like they're, they're things that can just go wrong that are, are they're super unpredictable no yeah. one's fault no one's that, like... that's called the fog of war right and it can apply to many different things but fog of war is just the unpredictability of the battlefield mm-hmm. and not being able to anticipate or plan for control. ever or control yeah. every single scenario mm-hmm. that is going to happen for weird unforeseen yeah. reasons that that's called the, the fog of war oh another character is uh, Kim Coates. He plays one of the Delta operators, and he was in Sons of Anarchy. Yes, yeah, he, he's yeah. Not, he's he, kind of looks like Joaquin Phoenix a little bit, like that kind of piercing like a, eyes and like, the dark hair. And the... Yeah, a little bit, like if Joaquin Phoenix did a, a lot of drugs or yeah. <laughs> was in a motorcycle gang. <laughs> <laughs> but he's great in this movie too. They're they're all it's well acted. It's you know it's directed by Ridley Scott, so his. He's you know done Gladiator and a bunch uh, Kingdom of Heaven. He he did the uh, King the Moses movie, Gods and Kings, mm-hmm. Exodus. 
Oh, and then that one guy that plays the official, one of the guys that's in one of the helicopters constantly, and he has the famous quote that you got on your um, oh, on the your intro before the podcast. Yeah, the Irene. Yes. Yeah. So he plays Colonel Matthews or Colonel Harrell. I, I can never remember which ones, which the two kind of commanders in the help. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So he's, I was saying, like, when we watched him, I've seen him. I don't think I've ever seen him not playing a military role in a movie. The, he's like either a political official person or yes. a military man. Yep. He, he has a small role in the very first Transformers yeah. movie and he's like a colonel in Iraq or something like that. I think yeah. he was a big character in 24. Oh really? I I have, I've never actually watched uh, 24. But yeah I mean he, all all of these guys that kind of sprinkle around there's a couple other ones where they have smaller roles and you see them and you're like oh I've seen that guy in this or oh I, mm-hmm. I, I recognize I yeah. recognize him and and things like that. So the, the cast is great. Yeah, it was a feast for our eyes, the cast. <laughs> yes, I, I think one of the most shocking ones is Tom Hardy. Yeah. Because he's so, so young. Young and scrawny. And he's talking... What talk- was the other one movie that he was young and scrawny? In? He's in Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers. Is yeah. that the one where he's like his first scene and he's in bed with a woman? Yes, yes that's Band okay. of Brothers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, he's talking in kind of like a... Brooklyn-y, New York-y mm-hmm. accent or something like yeah. that. He's got the crooked tooth. Yeah. He's super skinny. He's got a shaved head. Never knew he was English. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I th- there was also a Welsh guy in it as well. Um, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Um, I hadn't realized that he was in it. Um, oh, Ian Gruffin. Is it Ian? Uh, I, I pronounce it Ian. Okay, I'm not sure. Ian. Ian, Ian Gruffin. Yeah, he's... He's in what else? He was Mr. Fantastic in a Fantastic Four movie that came out a few years mm-hmm. back. He was um, Lancelot in the King Arthur movie with Clive Owen. I think and he was like voted like one of like Britain's most attractive men at some uh, point. Well, I, I think he just abandoned his wife and children oh, really? uh, over the last year and is like suing her and like destroying her financially. I'm not, oh. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what's going on, but I saw some headlines that I just clicked. They clickbaited me, and I and I mm-hmm. and I read it. And apparently, I have no idea. I'm not going to pass judgment on anybody, but apparently, there's some weird stuff going on with him and his him and his wife right now. So, oh, yeah, and he, then there was the guy from in um, what was that series that I haven't seen before? The um, not married with children. What was? Oh, Modern Family. Modern Family. Yeah, the, yeah uh, Ty Burnell is his name. Yeah. And he, <laughs> yeah, he's the dad in Modern Family. He's like super goofy and cheesy <laughs> and corny and uh, in that in that uh, TV show. But in, in Black Hawk Down, he, he plays a pararescue man who fast ropes down into a battle zone and is one of the, you know, operators in the helicopter keeping the, the crew chiefs alive. And he even, he, he's only in a couple scenes. But he kind of has some funny quips to, mm-hmm. you know, keep the morale up and stuff like that. It's great. It's great. Yeah, there's, like, I mean, we could keep going. There, there's, I'm sure there's a couple yeah, little yeah. ones. I mean, I know that there's Hugh Dancy, isn't it? He's the medic. Yes, and yeah, I like him. He's in, I mean, he's also in that. I thought King, he was brilliant. In he's that also movie. in the King Arthur movie mm-hmm. as well. He plays uh, Galahad. And I can't remember what other movie movies that he's in. But, yeah. There's uh, one of the guys who gets, he plays Sergeant Ruiz. He gets shot in the side and he later, he later dies in the movie. He was in CSI or CSI okay. Miami or, 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 so, or something like that. So yeah, there's, 
And this is all kind of right before these guys. Well, not all of them, obviously. There's some big actors at the time. Oh, um, Hugh Dance is married to Claire Danes. Did you oh, know that? I did not know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did not know that. But yeah, there's there's a, a but oh um the Jeremy Piven is in the movie. Who is he, he he is oh. the pilot of the first helicopter that goes down. He's yes. an entourage. Is yes, kind of like yes, the big yes. big thing that people would recognize yes, him in now. Yeah. All of the and this movie came out in two thousand and one. Did so this make a lot of them? Or? I mean, I wouldn't say it made them, but it was definitely a stepping stone for them. They're in a big budget movie directed by Ridley Scott with a bunch of kind of older, well-established actors as well. And I didn't lead... realize it was Ridley Scott. Yep. Okay. And then they kind of springboarded from this into other things that really kind of, you know, I would, at the very least, I would say helped launch their careers. Mm-hmm. It's It's filmed... Now we'll kind of leave the cast and move on to kind of some talk about the rest of them. It's filmed in Morocco, like a lot of yes, okay, like a lot of deserty military mm-hmm. movies are, and you can it, the one of the things that get, the movie got some flack for is its portrayal of Somalians. I was going to say, were they actually Somalians? Because they didn't look Somalian to me. No, they don't look Somalian, and I, the Somalian like population in the u.s was kind of up in arms about it and, and things like that right. and, and and for a number of things of you know portraying them as the the bad guys and stuff mm-hmm. like that it's like well you know i i can if i was if someone made a movie about me and made like my family or my people the bad guys i wouldn't like it either but when you're making this movie about this battle and it's an american movie i mean they're not gonna you know it, it's just i, I don't yeah. it, i don't i don't hit the movie too hard for that and, and I, as you know, somebody who's been to Somalia yourself mm-hmm. with the army, yep. um, did any of it look like anything that you not re- saw? No, or? not really. I mean, so I Mogadishu now, mm-hmm. and I've been to Mogadishu. I've been to the airport where they okay. where they staged. Mogad, it's kind of funny. Mogadishu now looks more like the movie like what the, how it looks in the movie then Mogadishu would have looked during this time okay. it's much more built up there's more buildings it's a you know it, it's obviously not like a super safe place but there's been a lot of renovations and construction and stuff like mm-hmm. that so the buildings look more like they would in in the movie today than they would have during the actual events of of the battle that being said it still doesn't really look anything like Somalia the, the people specifically, the Somalians in that Horn of Africa area, yes. they're very distinctive looking African people. I know, yeah, but none of them look like Somalians. No, and and I I can understand that being like, they don't, they don't look like Somalians. Like, well, of course mm-hmm. they don't look like Somalians. They filmed it in Morocco. Like, they can't film this in Somalia. No, but they could still have chosen Somalians to play those roles. Yes. I, yes, they could have. They could have gotten some Somalians to, especially some of the key roles. You're you're absolutely right. But when you're when you're filming the movie and you're in Morocco, you're gonna make do with what you can as best you can, yeah. kind of a thing. So I don't hit the movie too too hard. I understand there are some things they could have done, mm-hmm. but I'm not gonna fault there them. Was, I mean, there was too much. Something that I felt at the end of the movie, um, and obviously they couldn't have given me more like I could have watched hours more of that movie so could I um 
I kind of, I know it was all focused on that one battle. I wish that I'd known some history before the battle and then history, uh, more history after the battle. Well, we can talk of, about that. Not just what happened with those soldiers and, um, but just the general history. So are, are you doing a mini? I yeah. hadn't planned on doing a mini, um, but I mean, I, and, you know, especially now that since we're, do, we're recording it now, mm-hmm. but I could, I could do a mini on the history of this area. We're going to talk about it I now. I would be interested to listen to a mini. So we can, we can kind of just, uh, well, real quick before we dive into the history, mm-hmm. I know that they had to get support from the actual military to film this movie to use real Black Hawks and to use real Humvees okay. and to use all the little, real little birds and things like that. And they also brought in members of the ranger unit that were at the, the same ranger unit to come in and do some of the, the, the harder scenes okay. for them. So not like the actual men who did it in the battle, mm-hmm. but the current members of that 3rd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. Okay. And, and the, when I was in the guard, we had a sergeant who was actually in the 75th Ranger Regiment at the at the time and he was in third battalion and he was in the he's in the movie okay he he plays a ranger and he plays a delta in a couple of scenes where they're fast roping down or they're riding on the helicopters and stuff like that so that they didn't actually put the actors in the actual flying scenes okay. or have anybody actually fall out of the helicopter right. and things like that so that's, so that's that's kind of cool mm-hmm. um he has some stories about some of the actors and what they were really like and Things like that. Okay. He said, <laughs> he said, this is just one guy's story, but uh, he said Orlando Bloom was a complete prick <laughs> at the, at the oh. time. Um, that's the only one that I can really remember. <laughs> Maybe he's changed. I don't know. But that's just what he said. <laughs> so, yeah, we can talk a little bit about the history and we'll, we'll just start kind of at the beginning of con- the conflict. So... The battle takes place in 1993. In 1992, there's a coup of the Somali government. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of Africa, the areas are split up into clans and loose associations of families and things like that. So when this, this military coup happens, it doesn't necessarily transition into like a military dictatorship. It transitions into, and they kind of talk about this at the beginning of the movie with some of the words, you know, that they kind of pop up on screen, that it breaks into a lot of clan and tribal warfare and these different warlords vying for power in Somalia. Mm -hmm. Was there no famine before the coup? No, not not particularly. So that was through warfare, excuse me, through the warfare, one of the tactics that these different warlords used was to destroy crops of rival people's areas as a tactic to try and make them weaker and things mm-hmm. like that. And then that just spreads and spreads and spreads. Mm-hmm. On top of that, small part, especially certain parts of Somalia, like the northern half, is very, very desertous to begin with. So growing crops is not very conducive. The southern, the southern part of Somalia is much more lush and green. But when you've got warfare on this scale, and they're, one of the main goals is actively destroying crops, you know, it, it's just going to compound itself and make it even even worse so there the government completely collapses the military itself dissolves and then each of those it's a little this is a little simplistic but 
basically each general or each soldier goes back to their tribal or clan. So there is no effective actual governing body mm -hmm. in Somalia. There's these people in control of this area. There's these people. So how did the main guy, Adid, or whatever his name is, mm -hmm. um, become like, he was? He sort of seemed to become the leader. Right. So over the course of this Somali civil war, in the beginning stages, the UN, because of the famine and because of all the starvation, you got 300,000 people mm. who died, I think, over the course of the kind of beginning initial phases, it's going to be mm -hmm. somewhere in the 500 to 600,000 people who actually die, 1.5 million to 2 million people who suffer, displaced, you know, in some way, shape or form. So the UN steps in and tries to negotiate peace and help reform a government of some way. Most of the war leaders or the warlords begin trying to meet and negotiate and figure out some way to form a government of some kind. Muhammad Farah Adid is really the only person, you know, he's at these meetings as well and says, yes, let's talk about peace, let's figure out peace, let's form a government, all this stuff. But he's really the, the main one that rejects those peace offerings. He leaves the meetings and, be, and continues to be a warlord and attack the UN shipments and the Red Cross shipments mm -hmm. and, and, and things like that. And so he really becomes the focus on the UN's military delegation to capture him mm -hmm. so that they can bring peace talks back on the on the table. Right. That's why he's kind of seen as the central, mm -hmm. you know, bad guy. And so why why was it that they um, wanted to get those two officials? So the so there the task force ranger, which consisted of the rangers, mm -hmm. the Del delta operators, some air force pararescuemen, some navy seals who aren't really featured in the movie, but in the book and in the actual story, there were some Navy SEALs there. And then the 160th SWORD unit, which is all the helicopter. They're the Special Forces Aviation Wing. They all ship there to capture Adid. Right. And yeah. so it's, it's hard to just, like go in there, find this one man. So and, those two officials that they were going to capture them so that they could get some information on where he was and how to capture uh, him? Or? You know, at best case scenario, yes. But, right. you know, at the beginning of the movie, they capture the guy named Otto or Atto. Mm -hmm. He was an arms dealer. Okay. So they're, what they're doing is they're removing his key leadership, therefore hindering his ability to operate successfully, tactically okay. speaking, in the area that he controls and therefore reduce his militia efficiency, okay. be able to control more of the city. And this is for real in real life? They did this? In real life, yeah. Okay. So one of the things that kind of escalated forces is that before Task Force Ranger, and oh, sorry, and also the 10th Mountain Division was there. So that, that Task Force Ranger, also there was also the 10th Mountain Division. The loads pa of different people. The Pakistanis, the Malaysian forces. Mm -hmm. It's a UN delegation. What's the difference between the Rangers and the Delta? So they all came in helicopters, didn't they? Right. So we'll, we'll, we can talk about that too. the The hierarchy of the military is is structured in such that you kind of have conventional forces and you kind of have non conventional forces. Mm -hmm. And so we'll take we'll take Task Force Ranger and we'll, to illustrate all this. Tenth Mountain Division. They are an infantry, a light infantry division. They are 
regular conventional soldiers, just mm -hmm. normal every, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not trying to belittle them as being normal soldiers. they're not trained to drop in from helicopters or? Some, uh, that some of them would, would be, but that's not the division's purpose as to drop in on helicopters okay. and things of that nature. They are a large force that can, that can battle conventionally, occupy a lot of area because there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. They've got tanks. They've got armored vehicles. They've, they have helicopters as well. They've okay. got attack helicopters. They're a big conventional okay. force. And then you've got the Rangers who are kind of a step above the regular soldiers. You have to go to Ranger school. Mm -hmm. You have to be selected. Well, really you have to go to RAS, which is a Ranger selection course. And then if you pass that, then they, they'll send you to Ranger school. Or if you've already been to Ranger school, then you don't have to go. But it's they're special forces. Mm -hmm. Or they're okay. not special forces, but they're special operations. Right. Okay. Rangers are special operations. So they're like a step above everybody else. And then you've got you've got like the Green Berets, which are like special the actual special forces. They're a step above, but they have different roles. Okay. And, you know, Green Berets are non-conventional. So they just have like different areas of expertise, different that, training. It, Exactly. So the okay. Rangers are a special operations direct action unit. Okay. So what they are really, really good at is essentially conventional warfare, but at like the next level in a smaller unit mm -hmm. capacity. And they're shock troops, they're elite combat troops and thing, things of that nature. And, um, and none of them had had any previous war experience. No, def some of them definitely did. Oh, okay. Not all of them did. Some of them have served in Panama. Some of them have served in Grenada. Okay. So the, a lot of these rangers, especially in the leadership roles, had seen combat in... Apart from Josh Hartnett. Yeah, so he's a kind of a younger ranger. Okay. I think the average age of the rangers in Task Force Ranger was like 20. Uh -huh. But so, he had a leadership role, didn't he? Yes, he had yeah, a leadership role. Okay. Yep. Um, then you have Delta Force, which is a Tier 1. So... Delta would be tier one, Rangers are tier two, and they've restructured it since I've been in there because I think when I was in the military, Green Berets were technically like tier three, but now I think they're also tier two. And then conventional forces like the 1st Infantry Division, 10th Mountain Division would be would be tier three. What do the tiers mean? That's just like the, like the hierarchy of special, you know, like tier one, the Delta guys are like the top of the, the top of the top. Okay. And then Rangers would be... Well, those Delta, Delta guys did seem pretty insane, didn't they? Yes. I mean, they're, so the Delta is not officially recognized by the United States government. They are a tier one anti-terrorism unit for the army. So the way... Why are they not officially recognized? Because they do things that are illegal. They would... They do things that I wouldn't say are illegal. I would say they do things that are highly classified. Okay. So top secret missions and things oh, like right. okay. things like that. So Delta Force was involved in hunting down Pablo Escobar in Colombia, okay. but you never hear about that. You know they're not they're not supposed to be in the news. The unsung heroes, more or less. And so the uh, the way that you would compare Delta Force would be like SEAL Team Six, because uh, you've got the regular Navy SEALs, mm -hmm. and then you've got SEAL Team Six, which is the the Navy's Tier One operation. They would be be very comparable. So the Navy Six is like anti-terrorism, like on the water, mm -hmm. and Delta's like anti-terrorism on the land. Okay. So that's kind of so, and a lot of Delta Force are prior Rangers and prior Green Berets. They mm -hmm. kind of work their way up 
in, in that. Is um, one of the reasons why there's so many Somali pirates because of the positioning of Mogadishu and everything, you know, how corrupt all of that is and it's right on the coast. And so the Somali pirates don't operate near Mogadishu. Oh, do they not? They're okay. operating north, like, towards the Horn oh, area. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it does, but they're not, I'm just saying they're not operating in Mogadishu. Okay. So the Somali, the Somali Civil War that mm -hmm. started in 1992 is still going on. It has not right. ended. Okay. It's still going. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we were in Somalia. Not long ago. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it has not ended. It has just continued on. And it's gone up and down as far as okay. how bad the conflict has been. But technically speaking, it's still ongoing. What about, what about famine over there? I would say that they are not in a famine, but nothing is like it was before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's a war-torn country. Okay. And, it, and to this day, it's split up into different areas. You've got tribal areas. You've got areas controlled by the now UN-backed Somali government. Mm -hmm. You've got areas controlled by Al-Shabaab. You've got areas controlled by ISIS or the remnants of mm -hmm. ISIS and things like that. You had Al-Qaeda sending people in during, you know, during the uh, mid-2000s and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, and when you look at a map, you have, when you look at a political map of Somalia, it kind of looks like a seven on the Horn of Africa, like that. Okay. And, but when you look at a actual map of Somalia, it's just all hodgepodge. Government controls this area. Government controls this area. You know, Al-Shabaab controls this area. Tribal lands up here. It's just okay. all, it's, it's, okay. Not, okay. it's not. It's not controlled like it's a country, one country. No. Right. No. Yeah. And so... What really escalated things was this day called called Bloody Monday, <laughs> and there had been some UN forces mm -hmm. in in the area, and they were trying to capture a deed, and they got <laughs> in, intelligence saying that there was going to be a basically a war council of all of a deed's officials, generals, and a, that a deed was going to be there, mm -hmm. and so they sent these attack helicopters and basically missiled and rocketed the building and killed like 20 people or something like that. Is this, did this happen before the, the battle in this movie? Yeah, this happened okay. before. This happened before. And they killed everybody in the buildings. Then it came out later that those people were meeting there to discuss peace. And if, Muhammad Faradid's like faction was going to go to the peace tables and they were going to stop the fighting and stuff like that. Oh dear. And there's conflict of intelligence as to whether which side is true mm -hmm. because there was no indication that they were coming to peace talks. They were still fighting and, and all of that kind of nature. So there's no reason for them. They haven't captured anybody. They haven't met any of their needs. There's no reason for them to have been in these peace talks. But maybe they were, maybe they weren't. We, we will never know. The Somali side says they were meeting for peace. The U.S. intelligence says that they had confirmed that they were meeting on a council of war. Mm -hmm. And regardless of the fact of what the true manner of the meeting was, this is when Muhammad Fadal Adid's troops actively start trying to attack U.S. forces. Okay. And then things begin to escalate. And then... A little, a little time after, I'm not exactly sure how long, but a little time after 
that event is when Task Force Ranger, all the troops that are portrayed in the movie, they show up afterwards and they begin to try and hunt down and capture Muhammad Fala Adid so that they can remove that leadership position and bring everybody else to the peace talks and start reforming reforming the government. Does that kind of mm-hmm. yep. set the yeah, does. set the table? So they and they talk about this in the movie that this is going to be essentially like a raid. They're going to have Rangers and Delta Force come in on helicopters, the Delta land and go into the building and secure and secure all of the prisoners. Mm-hmm. And they're really looking for two political and military advisors of Adid. Yes. The Rangers rope down and secure the perimeter. And then other Rangers in the Humvees stage at a point. And when the Delta have secured the prisoners, they roll up, they load the prisoners onto the Humvee. So, so hang on, what you're explaining is what happened in the movie. And it, did this also happen in real life? Yes, so I'm 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 kind of talking about in real life. I, uh, I okay. kind of going through it historically, right? Okay. And then they're going to just load up on the Humvees mm-hmm. and the helicopters again, yes. and then go and then fly back to base. Okay. And they don't think it's they think it's going to take less than an hour, right? Around thir- thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, Muhammad Farah Adid had studied warfare throughout the mm-hmm. world. Throughout the world, he was. I can't remember where he went to school, but he was not an uneducated man. He was a general in the army before. He's a well-trained, you mm-hmm. know, smart. Were they not expecting them to have rocket launchers that were going to take down helicopters? No. So that is one of the key components of his defense tactics. Mm-hmm. He knows that the American forces rely on speed mm-hmm. and aggression of force, overwhelming firepower and speed. On, and they and they he also had the kind of setup of all the little like peasants and everyone in out in the country that as soon as all of the helicopters started started coming in there was the telephone calls or the radio calls yeah, abs- yes. to warn them. Yep. Um so did that did did that happen as well? Yes. So all of these things are done specifically at, they're not. It's not just like hodgepodge groups of people. Mm, it was who, organized. It was organized. Right. It was. It was his battle plan okay. to have that line of sight with the with the cell phone relay mm-hmm. to be burning the tires to have the markets with the guns so that everybody can just run to central locations and get guns. And it was right. specifically okay. trained that when a raid like this happened, they are going to try and shoot down a helicopter because if they can shoot down a helicopter, that messes everything. It messes all of the mm-hmm. speed. It, the U.S. usually operate in smaller groups, so if they can bring down a helicopter. The U.S. troops are going to fall back and defend the helicopter, mm-hmm. and then he wants to overwhelm them yeah. with the numbers of people he has, which you get from the movie. Mm-hmm. But it just seems very kind of like scattered and hodgepodge, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of it developed like a mob mentality. Right. But it was. It was a strategic plan by him to try and shoot down a helicopter. That's why they had so many RPGs. Okay. And so when it happened, I mean, the, the descriptions, of, there's RPGs going everywhere right. trying to shoot down shoot down these helicopters. Now, the RPGs are notoriously unreliable, especially during this time. So sometimes they'll hit a helicopter and they just, like, bounce off. Right, okay. You know, you know they miss. They don't, the, the tail fin, some of the tail fins that stabilize the, the grenade in flight mm-hmm. don't, don't pop out. So instead of going straight, it just like veers off to one direction. Right. So 
they have gotten better over time, but the RPGs Wait, are... did they show that in the movie? What? RPGs going all over the place and not working? No, not really. I mean, in the movie, most of them they, explode. They were, yeah. yeah. And a lot of them do explode. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying is that they, they kind of have a reputation okay. for being kind of unreliable. So, up until the first helicopter is shot down, everything's going pretty much according to plan. There are some hiccups, right? So, we With have... The fallout of the helicopter. Right, yeah. So, Orlando Bloom's character in the movie, Todd Blackburn, he falls out of the helicopter. We don't... In the movie... Does they, he survive? Yes, he's, yes he survives. Is he paralyzed or... I don't know. I don't know if he's paralyzed or not, but he does survive. I don't think I just he, assumed that he was dead. Um, when he fell from that distance. Yeah, so the first time I saw the movie, I thought he died as well. Mm -hmm. But there's there's one scene in the movie at the very end when Josh Hartnett's character is talking to his friend who died, the one who had the leg wound. Mm -hmm. And he says, I was talking to Blackburn the other day. Oh, and so okay. that just kind of indicates that he's still alive. Right. Yeah. He's telling him that he was talking to Blackburn because he is currently talking to a dead person. So he might have been telling this dead person that no, he was I, talking I know to he another survived. dead person. I, I know he survived. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. They talk about it in I've the book. I've just been talking to all of the all dead of guys. And he said... <laughs> 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 so, yeah, he falls out of the helicopter, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really change the mission. They run him. They run him. A group of soldiers run him down to... The, hell, uh, the Humvees, excuse me, and load him up, and then that that small group of Humvees takes off to get him back to the base so that he yes. can get medical attention. But as far as the operation itself, the mission, it's still going yeah. according to plan. Yes. The one, uh, the other little hiccup that they don't show in the movie okay. is that Chalk 4, which is uh, Josh Hartness Chalk, mm -hmm. is landed a block away from where they were supposed to land and secure the building. So you have the target building with four corners. Right. There's three ranger chalks surrounding it right now, providing cover. And then a block up the street. Is where they land. Is where they land. Where they all get out. Where they all get out. Oh, right. And. Why didn't they show that? Uh, I don't know why they didn't show it other than just like, it doesn't have that much of an effect on things. So okay, so they managed to get to their position. Without that being an issue. No, they don't get to their position. They land on that corner and they secure that corner. So they are they are separated. Oh, okay. So they secure the wrong corner. Okay. I mean they're they're providing security, mm -hmm. but not quite enough. Not quite where they should be. I yeah. see. Okay. Yeah. So they, they don't get that in and of itself is not in the movie, but it's not that big of a deal. Okay. And then, because they can still collapse back onto the Humvees, the Humvees are actually gonna on their exfil route, the Humvees are gonna drive by them irregardless right. so they could get on if everything goes to plan mm -hmm. and, and fine and, okay. and it wouldn't be that big of a deal now the the helicopters are providing cover fire over sniper cover fire rockets mini guns which is why they hang around they don't just like drop them off and go exactly and that is what gives the somalis the chance to mm -hmm. shoot them down the blackhawks are they're slow Slow and big and, and low. Exactly. And they're flying low so that mm -hmm. they can provide good cover. Mm -hmm. And so real quick, in the movie, it shows the Blackhawk kind of dodge an RPG. And that's why, yeah, and that's why he falls out, he falls out mm -hmm. of the helicopter. That is not... It has, no one really knows. It's, it's like a fog of war. Mm -hmm. There were people right there. There were people... There were RPGs going everywhere. 
it could have happened. We, no one, I mean, the people flying that helicopter, that is the one of the ones that crashed. And the guy who fell, he did, he doesn't remember. And he doesn't, he doesn't remember anything about it. Oh, really? Okay. The, the, the thing that most people... He doesn't even remember falling. He doesn't even remember falling. Wow. Yeah, he, the, the only things that he can remember is he's, he says, I was in the helicopter. Mm. And the next thing I remember is waking up in the hospital. I have no recollection. That must be so of, confusing and weird. But wow. it's his first time out on operation. Mm -hmm. What I think happened is he just had some nerves. And I'm sure the helicopter was moving around. And for whatever reason, when it was his turn to go down the rope, I think he just lost control. Yeah. He either slipped or... But, you know, also a helicopter yanking around unex you know, unexpectedly. The, the helicopter is not... It, it is moving, but it's hovering. They're not, like, flying and dodging yeah. and, and stuff oh, like okay. that. Yeah. So they don't... It's like, you know, like I said, it's like the fog of war. Mm -hmm. No one really knows how he fell. And it's crazy that no one knows because there's people everywhere. Mm -hmm. And there's and there's people right there. Josh Hartnett's character, Sergeant Eversman, was in the helicopter and the next one to go after Blackburn. He's like, I didn't even see him fall. Until until I looked down and saw that he had fallen. Right. And so, yeah, it's just... Oh, horrible. Not how you expect it to happen. No. The one, one problem I do have with the movie... And overall, they do a great job. It, everything overall looks amazing in the movie. One thing that just frustrates me is how how slow everyone gets out of that helicopter. Now, he really does fall in real life. Mm -hmm. But in the movie, they're all sitting in this helicopter for forever. And then you look at the wide shots, and you've got, like, guys going down the fast ropes like crazy, crazy fast. It's supposed to take... Yeah, okay. It's supposed to take seconds. And when you look at the wide shots, the actual rangers who are there to help out the film who are doing the actual fast roping, they're clearing that helicopter so fast. Mm -hmm. But then in the close-up shots of like Josh Hartnett and the actual actors in the helicopter as they go out the... It takes for forever. Yeah, okay. And I'm just sitting there going like, what is going on? And then, you know, Josh Hartnett's character puts his goggles on and, and then scoots... It's just like building up suspense and things, isn't it? Yes, I, I get it. It's just kind of frustrating mm -hmm. as you're sitting there and you're like, why are y'all still in the helicopter? Mm -hmm. Get out of the hell. You know, he, they could have shown it going faster and him falling. And, you know, that yeah. I just, it's just a kind of a little military thing that's okay. frustrating for me to watch. Okay, whenever so they, they wouldn't have done it that slowly. Yeah, they wouldn't have done right. it that slowly. Okay. But he falls and then they take him to the Humvees. Humvees take off. Mm -hmm. And now they're still just going on with the mission. They're basically loading up the prisoners when... His name is, um, I can't remember, his, his nickname is Elvis Woolcock. Yes. And it's Jeremy Piven in the movie. And it's the helicopter that Josh Harden and them were in. Super 6-1. Six, mm -hmm. Super six one. Yeah. It gets hit. And they... And he dies, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. So the helicopter loses stabilization and begins spinning mm -hmm. and flying off into the city. And they're trying everything to restabilize it. They know they're going to crash, but to try and stabilize it so that they can have a better landing yes. on impact. With they, with their, because of the way the helicopter crashed, they're pretty sure that they, they had no control over it or barely any control over it. But as they're coming over a building, they hit the top of the building. Mm -hmm. And the pilot nosedives it down into the ground so that the pilots are the ones that take the impact to help try and make sure that people in the back have the best chance of survival. Mm -hmm. 
the pilots are killed on impact. Mm -hmm. And so basically, he knew he was going to die. And he did that with the nose of the helicopter to yeah, try and save. Crazy. Yeah. Once the helicopter goes down, the entire mission changes to reestablish the perimeter mm -hmm. around the fallen helicopter. Mm -hmm. They still have to load up the prisoners. They still have troops, you know, kind of spread out over and in and around the target building. They immediately start trying to send the rangers out to the helicopter mm -hmm. to set up a perimeter. This is the main thing the movie gets wrong. In the movie, it's Josh Hartnett's chalk. They're yes. like, y'all are the closest. Y'all head directly to the helicopter. Mm -hmm. In reality, Josh Hartnett's chalk never gets to the helicopter, ever. Okay. They, so in the movie, he only has like one scene. His name is Lieutenant D. Tommaso. He's one of the other leaders of the Ranger Chalks who arrives at the crash site one mm -hmm. a little after Josh Hartnett. He, his squad has all of the guys that are in the movie in Josh Hartnett's squad. So the movie does this throughout the movie. Everything that happens pretty much happens, but they've combined and made like a super movie squad to where, led by Josh Hartnett, to where that everything that happens to the Rangers, now all of, they've taken all of those guys who do things, put them in one squad, commanded by Josh Hartnett's character, okay. and now everything that happens to them happens to this one squad so that we can fo easily follow it okay. through the movie. But... So so how so it's what it's actually two different squads. It's like three. It's like there's four ranger chalks, and they're all going to it, are they? Yeah. So they're all all life. four ranger chalks are trying to move to the mm -hmm. to the crash site. In the movie, all of the actual soldiers, the individual soldiers who are in Josh Hartnett's mm -hmm. chalk, are sprinkled throughout all of the other ranger chalks as well. So you know this kind of I say cool, but this kind of important thing happens to these two soldiers. Okay, we put them in Josh Hartnett's chalk. Okay, this soldier does this one thing. Okay, oh, now right. we put him okay. in Josh Hartnett's chalk. Okay, okay. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, the really the three Ranger chalks, except for Chalk Four, which in the movies Josh Hartnett's chalk, start moving towards the crash site. The Delta operators split between some of them going with the Rangers mm -hmm. and some of them going with the Humvee column okay. to provide extra security for the Humvees and for the prisoners that they're going to extract. Mm. Chalk 4, which is Josh Hartnick's chalk, gets on the Humvees as well. Okay. So, they never... They're never at okay. Crash Site Strange. 1. The other... Chalk... I think I believe it's Chalk 2 or Chalk 3 is the chalk that makes it to the helicopter mm -hmm. and sets up a defensive perimeter around it. Okay. Now, in the movie, they're in, like, this kind of, like, market square. It's very, you know, there's almost like a water fountain mm -hmm. in the middle with very distinctive four. It's a major intersection. Mm -hmm. yes. And the helicopter right in the middle. In real life, it is in an intersection, but it's a much smaller intersection. Okay. And you can... You can see, like, on a map that yeah. it's just kind of in the middle of these buildings. So the defensive structure in the movie is much cleaner, right? They've got these built-up concrete buildings mm -hmm. that are two, three stories tall and a massive kind of market center in the middle. Mm -hmm. it, it, it helps people view the battlefield a little bit and make it not as chaotic. Yeah. And really, it's just, like, in the middle of, like, the 
market neighborhood okay. buildings. And so there's not quite as much cover and things like that. Okay. Yeah, very, very much looked like the market square I'd been in in Morocco. It very well could have been the exact same one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the ranger chalks does get there. The other two ranger chalks who have Delta operators with them run into severe resistance in the streets. And they're not able, they're not able to make it to the crash site. They're getting a lot of wounded and they're getting surrounded and attacked and ambushed as they move. Okay. So they occupy two or three buildings a couple blocks away from the crash site. In the movie, it, they, they talk about the distance of you know, they're six blocks away, they're four blocks away, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. When you really look at the battle map, mm -hmm. they are so close. Oh, really? Okay. The crash is like four blocks away from the target building. Mm -hmm. And the Captain Steele, who's played by Jason Isaacs, who is Draco Malfoy's dad in Harry Potter. Yes, 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 yes. He's a leader. Oh, I, thought, I, I didn't know where I recognized him. <laughs> yeah, but... we've got to talk about okay. him. We're, we're talking about the cast. But he's the leader of the Rangers, the, the four Ranger Chalks. Mm -hmm. Yes. That group of Rangers gets pinned down in those buildings. They kind of set up, you know, defensive perimeter in those buildings. They're like two blocks away from the crash site. Okay. They're very, very close. So would they have got there quicker than they showed in the movie? One, they did get there quicker. But two, it's that's just how much fire they were under. Because multiple times they try to break out and get to the crash and they can't. Okay, right. Some of the Delta operators do break out and get to the crash site to help reinforce the Rangers. And they show that in the movie. It's not mm -hmm. quite the same. But mm -hmm. it... it and then there's also a point in time where some of the Delta guys try to break out and run in, to reinforce the crash site, and they can't. They have to run back in the buildings. Right, okay. A lot of the, the it's just, in the movie, it makes it seem like everyone's spread out a lot more. They're far, they're farther apart. Right. But in reality, everything is so close together. Even crash site two is just a, like across, you know, a major intersection. Right. But because of the chaos of the battle, and how many people they're under attack from, they can't move. They can't move. I mean, there's okay. roughly 100 U.S. soldiers in this raid, and they're fighting thousands, thousands of Somali militia. Right. So the convoy begins to be routed and redirected to get to the crash site one. Mm -hmm. At this time is when they start running into roadblocks and roadblocks and roadblocks. And that is another part of the defensive strategy of Adid's militia. Shoot down a helicopter and then start doing these barriers so that the, the armor and the tanks and the Humvees and things like that can't get to them. So those those um, barricades, a lot of some of them were, but a lot of them weren't there until they shot the helicopter down. So they the the militia the Somali militia sees where the helicopter mm -hmm. is and then they start putting up barricades on all of the roads right, okay. in the surrounding area so that so another bit of organized yes. uh, war that they've it, exactly it was the part US of way. their plan it wasn't just like oh there's Humvees let's put up a barrier it's like no we shoot down the helicopter uh -huh, okay. we put up the barriers and then we mass our attack so they they are doing a coordinated attack mm -hmm. on these U.S. forces the Real quick, the, the Delta operators in the movie, they're almost all compilation characters. Okay. So So there would have been more of them. 
So you see, you see the actual number about the actual number of Delta operators. But yeah, but it key, would have been those two main guys doing as much as they exactly. Done. So pretty, pretty <coughs> right. much everything that they do, mm-hmm. someone actually did, but they've combined them into. So they're those, doing. Yeah, they're yeah, like okay. super. They're yeah. super soldiers. So like. Right. Um, Sergeant Sanderson, who was the Delta operator that we were talking about, who was in Armageddon and stuff like that, mm-hmm. he's a he's a mixture of like two. Two Delta operators, Kim Coates' character, yeah. who uh, was in Sons of Anarchy. He's kind of a compilation uh-huh. of two characters. And then Eric Bonas' character is like yes. a com- compilation of like three three oh, guys. Okay. Okay. And they kind of have some of the similar names. Like in the movie, Eric Bonas' character is called Hoot. And there was a Delta operator and his last name was Hooten. Okay. And I don't know what Kim Coates' character's actual name is okay. in the movie. But he goes by the nickname Grizz. And there was a Delta operator who had the nickname Grizz, who did some, okay. of, some of the similar some of the similar things. So the Delta operators that are not compilation characters are the Delta operator who is in the first crash, mm-hmm. who crawls out, and he's fighting by himself. Okay, yeah. And yes, he yes, gets yes. shot. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. I asked who he was in the actual. Yeah, yeah. As, as an actor. As an actor, yeah. yeah. His name was uh, Daniel Bush, I mm-hmm. think. In reality, there were two Del- Delta operators that, that survived that crash, other than the aircraft crew members who survived. And his name was Jim Smith. He's kind of a legend in the military community. He started a kind of training center called Spartan Tactical, and he liked military, and, and okay. uh, people go there and train and stuff like that. They both crawl out. Of the helicopter. Okay. And they're both fighting together. Instead of just one. Instead of just one. Okay. And they both get shot like four or five times okay. by themselves before the ranger mm-hmm. shot gets there to provide security. Okay. They both get loaded up onto the that little helicopter, the little bird yes. helicopter lands. Mm-hmm. They load both of them up on there. Basically, okay. as the rangers get there to secure the perimeter, okay. they take off and take them back to uh, headquarters so they can get medical treatment. Uh, the man in the movie, he dies en route to Germany. But Jim Smith survives. Okay. So now we're kind of got, we've got troops in buildings who are on their way to crash site but can't move. And it's a mixture of Delta and Rangers. Mm-hmm. You've got one chalk of Rangers plus a few Delta operators at crash site one. The pararescue troops drop in mm-hmm. and they stabilize in the bird at a certain point in time. They don't portray this in the movie, but at a certain point in time, they do remove some of the crew members and put them in a building so they can give them better medical care. But some of them, they can't get out. So they're in the bird and they're they're taking like the seats and things like that, which are bulletproof and like propping them up on the walls okay. to make like a, a, a barrier, a barrier for them inside the helicopter. Okay. And then you've got the convoy, which is trying to make its way mm-hmm. to crash site one. And in the convoy, the guys... Um, that are in charge of the guns on top of the is it the Humvees? On top of the Humvees, yeah. Um, why? So and they're all getting shot mm-hmm. and dying and falling back into the Humvees. Yep. So why are they not surrounded by bulletproof cages? Right. So this is this is the ever evolving situation that is the military Humvee. Mm-hmm. The Humvee was meant to replace the World War Two Willie Jeep. You know what I'm talking about that yes, little. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So the Willie. And that was more. That was a lot more open air, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah it, 
It's completely open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, okay. the Willy Jeep was just like a trans a transport. The Humvee is more like a kind of tank, in in the fact that what well, it's like more armored and it's bulletproof. And well, so that's kind of my point. The Jeep is a transport vehicle only. Mm -hmm. Take people to and from places. Right. That is what the Humvee was meant to be. It was meant to just be a buffed up all terrain transport vehicle. Right. Okay. Then it has slowly evolved over time to become this all-purpose Swiss Army knife attack vehicle. Mm -hmm. So the original Humvees, other than just having like metal on the outside, mm -hmm. were not like up armored or, or spe specifically armored or had bulletproof okay. windows or anything like that. Then some of them get armor, some of them get bulletproof windows. All right, well now we need a way to be able to attack while we're driving. Let's cut a hole in the roof and put a machine gun on top of it. Right, okay. When you look at Humvees today, and they're actually starting to be phased out for different vehicles, but the Humvee was not meant to have a gunner on top of it. Right. And they became very top-heavy, and they flip and things like that. And so when you look at them now, they do have roll cages mm -hmm. and armor, like an armor canopy. That Like when, when I was in a Humvee in Africa... There's like a metal cocoon kind of a thing that goes around you. Now, it's still open top, but you have like a metal barrier and then like a little visor that a metal visor that kind of goes in front of the gun. So like when you're looking, you're looking through like a slit that helps like protect your face. That just hadn't come out yet. Okay. They, it's just you look at it now and you're like, oh, well, all those guys are getting shot. Why don't they have some type of protection? Mm -hmm. And it's things like this, events like that, that led to the development of okay. those types of you know, metal cages and, and, and barriers around the the gunner in the in the hatch. And that in turn led to the Humvee being even more top heavy and flipping even more. Right. It, okay. The Humvee has lots of problems, but it's also done a lot of great things. So that's why a lot of those guys, yeah, they don't they don't have the protection. Yeah. Okay. So as the convoy is trying to make its way to the crash site one. They're continually getting ambushed and shot, and all of those and all of those types of things. I mean, in the individual things that they show in the movie, a lot of those things actually happen. The the Delta operator who gets basically cut in half mm. by an RPG mm -hmm. actually happens. The truck driver who has an RPG that's stuck in stuck inside of him, that one doesn't explode. It just hits him and basically cuts his arm off and goes inside. <sighs> that act that actually did happened. he survive? No. Oh, okay. No, he did not survive. And the scene where one of the soldiers sees another soldier's hand on the oh, ground mm -hmm. and he picks it up and puts it like in his bag. Oh, yes. That actually happened. Oh, wow. And did it belong to a live soldier or a dead soldier? I'm not exactly sure who it belonged to. I would assume it's a dead soldier. I'm not 100% positive. Mm -hmm. But they talk about it in the book. And he's basically saw it and he's like, I just thought that there should be something to remember him by. Mm -hmm. And so I picked it up and put it in my in my pocket. Gosh. Mm. Um the so so the two guys that were left so that were in Josh Hartnett's um chalk and he had said you two stay here mm -hmm. um because you're dependable. Right. And we'll all go to the crash site. And those guys end up getting stranded, um, and they didn't. They didn't. They misinterpreted right. his instruction mm -hmm. and didn't get onto the Humvees when the Humvees were leaving. Right. 
Um, I guess that didn't happen at all because Josh Hartnett's well, it did happen. Guys didn't go. It, oh, did, it did. It did happen. Okay, they were just, just in, they're them. just in a different squad. They're okay, in a, they're in a different shop. And so, why is it that they didn't have radios to contact? So, very similar to the Humvee situation, mm-hmm. when you look go back to like World War II in Vietnam, mm-hmm. you had like one radio operator per squad. Okay. And he's kind of next to the commander or whoever's in charge, so that he can radio back to headquarters and things like that the the evolution of the radio has just progressed slowly mm-hmm. so nowadays every soldier has some type of comms with them and like when when we were out i had a radio that had different channels and so one channel was inter-squad so i'm on like channel one and i can talk to everybody who's on my team we're all linked and we can talk to each other mm-hmm. i can switch to channel two and that would be to like the aircraft that we were that we were with. And then if you want to talk long range, you would have a, someone else who has another radio that has a longer range capability okay. that can. And so back then, they're just kind of coming into modern, like the modern era, so to speak. And so you look at it and every every team member there or almost every team member has a shortwave inter-squad radio comm. But for whatever reason, sometimes they don't work. There were many times when we were out there and we check all of our equipment, mm-hmm. we do radio checks and comm checks and everything. Everything's working great. Mm-hmm. You, you step off the bird in, in onto the ground and then all of a sudden it was like, hey, my, it comes up to you and it's like, hey, my radio's not working. And it's like, what? And you look at it and everything looks like it's fine, but for whatever reason, right, the radio, okay. sometimes you're too far away. Mm-hmm. What? I, no one knows. It's, it's just radios, you plan on radios to fail. Right, okay. And so those guys who got left behind did have radios, but for whatever reason, they're too far away at a certain point. Okay. They, they, they just couldn't get into contact. They also were in a different chalk. Mm-hmm. And so. And one of those guys was the, the Scott from Transporting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he was deafened by was it was it because of Tom Hardy shooting right by his ear? Yes. That's what. Okay. So guns are loud. Yes. Very. And so very, did that happen for real as well? I, be- I believe so. I think that to be a hundred percent honest, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think they talk about it in the book, but it's like a like a sentence, like you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Private Nelson could barely hear due to all the firing. It was essentially deaf, okay. you know, kind of a thing. And would that be like a temporary thing or would that be, could that be permanent? It could be permanent. Right. I mean, I've got, I've got permanent hearing loss from, you know, and I, and people get hearing loss even where wearing hearing protection mm-hmm. and things like that. But in combat mm-hmm. or on mission. You can go like really deaf temporarily. Yeah. And I mean, I never wore hearing protection other than like my, what they're called Peltors. And they're they're like little headphones that attach to your helmet and go over your ears, and they're attached to your radio. And then you have like a mic that comes mm-hmm. in front of you so that you can. So it, they do act as hearing protection, but I didn't wear like plugs or earmuffs. Okay. Or, so things get loud, you know. So it's very plausible that he that he would go at the very least temporarily, okay. temporarily deaf. So as the convoy is getting ambushed over and over again, one helicopter goes down. Another helicopter that was dropping the pararescue um, operators into the helicopter, mm-hmm. it gets shot at and gets, in the movie, it doesn't make it look that bad, but that helicopter almost gets shot down too. 
it barely makes it back to base. Okay. So when that helicopter is basically wounded, they had Super 6-4, which is Mike Durant's helicopter, come in to take that position and provide cover. Okay. They get hit by another RPG in the tail. Mm-hmm. And they know they're hit. They're told to take it back to base so that it doesn't go down. And they think they can make it. And that's why it's kind of farther away. Right. Because they're on their way back to base. Well, they were hit worse than they thought. Because on the way there, the entire tail rotor snaps off. Yes. Which is what keeps the helicopter being able to yeah, go, yeah, yeah. go straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they show that in the movie. Yes. It's spinning out of control. And it crashes farther away. At this point in time, they get the Humvee column that got back to base with Blackburn, who was wounded, back up and running. And they're going to send them back out to get to crash site two. There's more and more roadblocks over and over and over mm-hmm. again. They're, they don't know how long it's going to take. This is when the two Delta snipers, who are Gary Gordon and Randy Shigart, who are also, they're, they're not compilation characters in the movie. They are, mm-hmm. everything they do, they actually... Uh, yes, okay, because they were given the medals of honor at the end. Yes, they? yes, oh. they're given the medal of honor. Okay. They volunteer multiple times, and they're eventually allowed to be dropped in a little ways away, and they work their way to the crash site. Mm-hmm. Just the two of them. Now, in the movie, they make it seem like it's just the two of them plus Michael Doreen. Now, the it is pretty much like that, except for two things. One, the helicopters do provide some support for them overhead while they're fighting. Mm-hmm. And two, every single crew member of Mike Durant's helicopter survived the crash. So for a while, there's like four or five guys okay. fighting there, not just basically two. Mm-hmm. Now, throughout the course of, of the fighting, the helicopters run out of ammunition and they have to retreat due to RPG fire. Mm-hmm. So they have to fall back. Throughout the course of the battle, the other crew members of the helicopter are killed as well to a point where it is just the, just two, du- just okay. the two of them. And the pilot, Mike right, Durant. Okay. And the crash site looks more or less ex- how it how it does in the movie. Mm-hmm. He's he's broken his leg. He's cracked a vertebrae in his back. Oh, my gosh. They drag him out of the helicopter, and they prop him up against the wall, mm-hmm. and they give him his gun. They say, watch our back. Mm-hmm. They, go, they go back out there. They're fighting by themselves, and... Gary Gordon, who was uh, Jamie Lannister in mm-hmm, Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. he's the first one to get to get shot. And Randy Shigart, who's the other sniper, gets his gun, takes it to Mike Durant, and basically, you know, it, it, it's almost word for word. Mm-hmm. And he says, "Gordy's gone," mm-hmm. which was his which was was, yeah. was his nickname. And the last thing Mike Durant said is that. On he was leaving, he turned around and he goes, good luck. And then he disappeared and went back to the helicopter okay. to defend the bodies and his friend. Right. And then he's killed. And then they take Mike Durant hostage. And the bodies at Crash Site 2 are the ones that, and they show this, they start to show it in the movie where they strip them. Yes, and take them away. And they drag them. And uh, it was shown on the news. That like these naked bodies being dragged behind trucks oh. and mutilated in the street, okay. 
and everything like that. So, so they their bodies were never sent home. Eventually, they get all of the bodies back. Oh, really? Even those that they took. Eventually, they get or the remains. Yes. Okay. Eventually, they get all of the remains of the of the bodies back. Um. At this point, going back to the convoy is when they kind of realize they can't get to crash site one on their own. They've got too many wounded. They're, they don't have the right equipment to get through the blockades. Mm -hmm. And so they request permission to go back to base. Yes, okay. And so they... Had they been like, you say there's two guys in the front, had at that point, he did he get shot in his neck and then did the other guy get all of that glass in his face? Yes. Yeah, that happened. And that happened to a lot of them. Right. Okay. I think it said, like, there when they got back to base, there was not a single unwounded soldier wow. in the convoy of some of some way, shape, or form. And the guy, the guy that went back out to help them that had the broken wrist, did that happen for yep. real as well? Yep. So Ewan McGregor's character in the movie is called Grimes. Yes. And he's based on a character who I can't remember his name. Mm -hmm. He's a real character. And basically everything that Ewan McGregor's character does, this guy actually did. Okay, it's that's ex cool. Ex well, hang on. <laughs> it's extremely impressive from a military standpoint. He, later on, I think he's in jail still for something like child pornography or oh. pedophilia or rape oh, or, or, or something, something very bad. And so when they made the movie, they changed the name because what he did militarily speaking was heroic yes and they wanted to recognize the fact that this man saved a lot of lives and he fought hard uh -huh. but they didn't want to glorify him as a person because of the things that he had done afterwards right and so they changed they changed the name okay you didn't give him his real name no right which i get um but yeah so well i really liked his character in the movie yeah <laughs> Yes, yeah, especially like when you're expecting when they that when they sent him out, you you thought that he was going to be a liability, but he completely was the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, I I love his character in the movie too. He's he's one of my one of my favorites. Um, so, so is it is this how it how it happens in real life that they would not leave any dead bodies behind? That they would sacrifice potentially sacrifice many more soldiers to retrieve dead bodies? Yes. Okay. Yep. So the Rangers have this motto or creed, which is, and, and really the whole U.S. Army does. It's not just the okay. Rangers. There is that no one gets left behind. And other armies know that and they take advantage of it all the time. Right. Okay. But they know that the U.S. soldiers are going to do whatever it takes to not leave the bodies behind. Right. Wounded, dead, captured whatever whatever it is right. no one it, it's part of it's part of the army creed i will not leave a fallen comrade okay um then the were there women shooting like arming themselves and shooting yes okay there were women there were children shooting so one of the things that happened in this battle that was done strategically on their part and on per, like on purpose was that they got the civilians and made them get into the streets and run up to the U.S. soldiers so that the militiamen who are armed could use them as cover because they know that the U.S. soldiers 
don't like shooting civilians. Mm-hmm. And so at the beginning of the battle, the U.S. soldiers are basically doing everything they possibly can to not shoot civilians. Mm-hmm. But and, really, and is it really something that they, the instruction that they'd be given to not shoot? Do not fire they, unless fired upon is... Even though you can see them, like, arming themselves and getting their guns ready, aimed at you. So ROE... You cannot shoot them whilst they're doing that. ROE, which is Rules of Engagement, is always sticky. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have problems with ROE in the military. I had pro- I disagree with a lot of ROE in the, mil- in the military. When you are fighting a non-conventional war mm-hmm. against men who are not in uniform, you have to basically be shot at before you can fire back to minimize civilian casualties. A lot of, especially in the Middle East and Africa, there's a, and, and to this point, I can kind of understand where it's coming from, but the, the way they apply it can get troops into stickier situations than need be if they were just allowed to do their job. Is that a lot of people in these areas have guns regardless. Everyone has a gun. Mm-hmm. All the time. And so they you can't just say, oh, he's got a weapon, he's he's a threat. Right. But yeah. when you're in the midst of the battle, you know, that kind of goes. You can assume that they are gonna use those weapons against you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they do. Once the battle kicks off, there really is no, no more hanging around. No more time. no more ROE. Okay. They're by the end of the battle, they're losing so many people who are wounded and shot and killed and their friends are that basically if they see guys with guns in a mob, they open up on it. Mm-hmm. And throughout the battle, the mob basically disappears because those civilians are tired of getting shot as well and they don't care which side it is, you know. Mm-hmm. So they kind of dissipate and it's just the militia versus the, the soldiers. But throughout it, there's a lot of civilians that get killed. Because they're being forced by the Somali militia to be on the street as human shields from the soldiers. And there's going to be collateral damage when you're in a close quarters combat situation and people are using other people as human shields. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yes, there were women who Which were... is what they're saying in the Russian-Ukraine um, war, isn't it? Russia's... Um... Russia's been saying that using the Ukrainians as yeah that the Ukrainians are using their civilians as as um, um, barriers and the Russians are saying the Ukrainians are doing that yeah I mean uh, yeah I mean I I heard I heard that the Russians were using the Ukrainian civilians as human shields to move up on the Ukrainian soldiers yes but the Russians aren't saying that they're, they're not admitting that. They're saying that the Ukrainians are using that. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what they're saying. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. But yeah. So, at this point, the battle has turned into a massive mess. And this is when General Garrison decides we need the 10th Mountain Division, we need the Pakistanis, we need the Malays, which is the Malaysians, mm-hmm. and we need armor, and, and they basically are like, get everything. Otherwise, these guys are all going to die because mm-hmm. they're going to be here overnight. Yes. They're beginning to realize it. And they send out and they start getting all those troops together. But they're not going to be able to leave until, you know, like the morning. Mm-hmm. And so they know they're in for a fight throughout the night. They're running low on ammo. They've got a ton of wounded. People are dying. The scene where the guy gets shot in the leg and they have to mm-hmm. try and clamp the artery mm-hmm. that actually happens mm-hmm. like i said it's not in josh hartnett's squad it's in a, yeah. it's in another mm-hmm. another chalk 
but that actually happens. Yeah, and their the communication was so sporadic and everything was so chaotic that like the relay from the people on the ground, the people in the helicopter, back to base, back mm -hmm. of it, 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 everything was just messed up because of the bad communication and relay time and, and everything right. like that. And they basically were like, they tried to call in a bird multiple times for him to get him to the, to get him to, you know, um, hospital mm -hmm. and it was refused. And then apparently like some time later they said, um, you know, are, are you ready for the medevac? And they came back on the like, don't send it. We don't need it anymore. Basically, like, telling him, like, he, right. he, he died. Yeah. Um, did did one of the characters, one of the soldiers, actually throw that, like, strobe thing out onto the roof? Did that happen? Has that happened? So it does happen, but they do it differently. Okay. So in the movie, Josh Hartnett, mark the buildings with strobes so that the birds... The little birds with the rockets and the miniguns can strafe the enemy position. Yes. And in real life, you wear a strobe on you. Oh, okay. So it's reversed. And they would have worn them then, would they? So the the strobe, the IR strobes are a little bit different today than they were back then. But basically, what they did was they put the strobes out in front and on top of the buildings that they were on. So the the pilots with their night vision can pick up the IR strobe. Mm -hmm. the infrared strobe and see okay these are all the friendly positions everywhere else we can shoot right just not where the strobes are. just not where the strobes are but in this he throws the strobe onto where the um where the where the militia where the, is yes so okay. they do do it but it's not the same okay and josh hartnett doesn't run across the entire battlefield under fire to throw the strobe okay. up on it because he's in the humvees right. <laughs> he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's not he's even not doing he's not doing any of that <laughs> but they do they i mean um, does Josh Hartnett, does he represent an actual, like, his name? Is that a real yes. soldier's name? Yeah, he's a real So, character. I mean, was that, like, a soldier in real life? Were people that don't know the history of this watch this movie and he was just, like, turned into a massive hero? Yeah, I mean, I am sure the real Sergeant Matt Eversman doesn't portray himself the way that the movie portrays, mm -hmm. Josh Hartnett's character portrays him. Um no, I know that he won a silver star in Afghanistan or a silver star. Does the rest of the world think, you know, unless you've studied the history of this battle, you know, think that he did all of those things? I would assume so. Right. I would assume so. I mean, like I said, they get pretty much everything right, but they they rotate and combine a whole bunch of things into what sort of... It makes it easier from a audience standpoint to follow what's going on in the movie because they already have to jump around to all these different <clears throat> locations. Right. already mm -hmm. but it is a little frustrating that they have guys doing things that real guys doing things that they didn't actually do when they could have just had the real guys do it and made them a character yes, you know yeah, so yeah, it, yeah. that part is frustrating yeah but sergeant eversman was on the lost convoy as it came to be known he was in a ton of fighting he is still a hero right yeah he is still a hero in real life he was in massive amounts of combat. Different. It's just a different part of the battle than it was as they show him in the in the movie. Okay. So there is no no reason to say, oh well, he's not as big of a hero or not as big of a soldier. Or I mean, mm -hmm. he was in some intense intense combat on that law on the Lost Convoy. Yeah, all of them were. All of them were. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the largest battle since Vietnam. Okay. It's it's huge. I mean, 
is, uh, you know, a hundred some odd U.S. soldiers versus like 2,000 Somali militia. Mm. Then later imagine on, if they all knew that before they went out, that that was going to be, this is going to be the largest battle since Vietnam. Yeah. <clears throat> so Eric Bono's character is a Delta Force character. They show him in that small group getting mm -hmm. to crash site two and they get out of the Humvees and yes. stuff like that. Yes. That actually happens. It, it doesn't happen quite the same, but more or less that happens. And then mm -hmm. they make their way to crash site one. They take out some mortars and the recoilless rifle and then take mm -hmm. a perimeter around and help defend throughout the night. That actually happens mm -hmm. as well. That was very cool. Like I said, it's not quite exactly the yeah. same, but more or less, that's that's how it happened. And when, when um, yeah, the scene that I kind of found, like, I thought, oh, I can't believe, I believed it all apart from this one scene. I can't remember his character, but he he's the one that comes back in the Humvees again. He chooses to come back again. Mm -hmm. um, that actually happened. Yes, no, that's not what I don't believe. What I didn't believe was when he was just casu casually walking through a war scene and then goes up to one of the other guys and starts shaking his hands and saying who he was and like out in the middle of like this fire everywhere and he's just stood up shaking, you know. Wouldn't you just like run and then do that bit behind cover? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I thought you were talking about a different guy. But yes, I understand what you're saying. I think I, I, I the book doesn't say like, Colonel McKnight casually walked up under fire to shake his hand. It doesn't say that. I think what they're portraying in the movie is that, hey, this is the guy that is here to help rescue and bring you out of harm's way. He's exuding the confidence and things of that. I think that that's kind of what, okay. you know, trying to build his character. I just thought that that was the one bit that, to me, was just not very believable. <laughs> <laughs> the 10th Mountain Division. Pakistanis and the Malaysian forces rendezvous at at, at the Pakistani Stadium, mm -hmm. and then they go to relieve the forces. And they have a hard time getting through the roadblocks too, even with the tanks and things like that. Mm -hmm. They get to a certain area on National Street, and they set up mm -hmm. a perimeter. And then a group of the armored convoy breaks through and gets to crash site one and Humvees and armored vehicles set up a perimeter around crash site one. Now, all of the troops are basically consolidated around crash, around crash site one because they've relieved Captain Steele and his men who were trapped down at the buildings by themselves. Now, everyone is at crash site one. They're either the wounded are all loaded up on into armored vehicles and it takes hours to get the remaining men and bodies out of the helicopter. And they show this in the movie. They have to disassemble the entire cockpit because the dirt from the crash has basically buried them up to their mm. waist. And they're pinned down by parts of the crumpled mm. helicopter. They have to get a saw and cut through. They have to dismantle everything and then dig the bodies out. And eventually, they get all the bodies... They load them up onto the vehicles and they're ready to move. And this is when they realize they don't have enough room for everybody in the vehicles. Okay. And then that was, that was the other bit that I thought, there were two bits that I thought were a bit unrealistic. So yes, I understand there wasn't enough room and they were like, we're not getting on top. Mm -hmm. But what they then decided to do was like run much slower behind with no cover of anything and no yep. speed. Yep. So this is 
this is two things. One, they don't want to get on top of the vehicles because that makes easy, easy targets for all of the people on the rooftops. It's unstable. You could, they're, but you could fall off. are you not an easy target running through the street much slower? Sorry. In some ways, yes, but you have freedom of movement to move from cover to cover I to suppose. cover. Okay. A more stable right. firing okay. position from your buddies. You have that mutual support as a, you know, effective fighting force on and the And is ground. that what they did in real life? Did they, were a bunch of them, you know, the last sort of ones at the very end, they came in after the Humvees and they ran yes. all the way? So it's called the Mogadishu Mile. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be known as the Mogadishu Mile. It was a mile, was it? No. So it, they just call it the mile. In the movie, they, they get this wrong. In the movie, they portray it as these soldiers running all the way back to the Pakistani mm-hmm. stadium. Mm-hmm. That is not what happened. They ran from Crash Site 1 to National Street, where the other armored convoy, the rest of the armored convoy was. It's like, it was like, Half a mile, okay. three quarters of a mile, or something like and that. And then they jumped on. Then they jumped on all the other vehicles, and they all drove back okay. to the stadium. Okay, all right. So now, don't get me wrong; it is still crazy that they ran under fire by mm-hmm. themselves after they just basically spent like twenty-four hours. Yeah, it's crazy. Under intense combat, <laughs> and they think they're safe. They think they're saved, and then this and actually. Then they're like, oh, yeah, we're and not they were done yet. they were supposed to use the vehicles as cover. But the people driving the vehicles were all like scared because they're all under fire as well. Mm-hmm, so they're going far too so fast. They're going too fast. Yeah. And they're, I mean, that's also part of the convoy is staying, the, the strength of the convoy is mm-hmm. staying together. Yes. So one, they're nervous. Two, they're trying to stay together to protect the convoy. Yes. And so they, they take, they take off and they leave them behind. And they have to run this three quarters of a mile through these streets under fire by themselves. And they don't lose anybody in, in the Mogadishu mile. It's just not quite as dramatic as the movie and then, and, portrays it. And then they have all of the locals at the end that's by the stadium all kind of like celebrating and bringing yeah, them in and everything. That's just made up. That's just made up. Right. Yeah. There, there, were, there are friendly people, right? Yeah. Not everybody in that city was trying to kill them. Mm-hmm. There are UN-controlled areas that are more safe. And those people see the support that they're getting, yeah. you know, and everything like that. So there, there are friendly people in the area. They didn't line the streets and cheer them as they okay. as they were coming in into the stadium. Um, and so I have another question about the pilot who um, who was taken hostage. Mm-hmm. He was released. It said at the end two weeks later. Yeah, like eleven or twelve days later. Why like did they release him? So it didn't say what, why, or anything. Right. So negotiations begin to take place, kind of like behind closed doors, mm-hmm. back channels, and things like that from the UN, US. Mm-hmm. And then other warlords who know Adid mm-hmm. and things like that. And basically saying, like, I don't exactly know how the negotiations went. It's kind of secretive. But they're able to negotiate his release. And they get they get him back. Okay. I just wouldn't have thought they would have been able to do that so quickly. Then And then a few days later is when they get the bodies back as well. Okay. From the Delta snipers and the rest of the... Right of the helicopter crew that were stripped and, mm-hmm. and dragged through dragged through the street. And gosh, how traumatizing that would be to be the person that has to deal with those bodies. Yep. And the they leave a couple a few weeks later. And the the UN presence doesn't, but the US troops do. 
and the Somali Civil War continued and like continues to this day. You know, it's I'd say it's better, but it's I mean it's 1992 to now. Mm -hmm. Those people have been in more or less constant conflict, and it's uh, it's just crazy. Um, well, that was my, I think, my favorite movie that we've done so far. I love Black Hawk Down. It's one of my all time, it, it's up there for me of one of my all-time favorite movies. I, I watch it all the time. It never gets old. It's extremely quotable. It's got, you know, funny, I mean, funny lines. It's mm -hmm. got that kind of soldier humor, especially yeah, after the game. Um, one of the, probably the most famous line, or the two most famous lines in the movie are, Irene, anytime you're like starting yeah. something, everyone's like, Irene, Irene. <laughs> and then uh, this is my safety, which is when they're like having the barbecue and Draco Malfoy's dad, the Captain Steel. Oh, yes. He's like, safety should be on at all times, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, kind of a thing. And he's like, well, this is my safety, sir. And then like walk, walks away. <laughs> it, it's uh, everyone says it. All the time. <laughs> if you have a gun in your hand and you're just like holding it, you're like, that's my safety. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. But, um, did he say that in real life? I don't know. that. I, I mean, I don't think it's not in the book. Okay. But things like that happen. So you've read the book? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, it's by Mark Bowden. And it's a collection of articles that he had written for like the New York Times or something like mm -hmm. that. And then he compiled them and added some Okay, thing. so he wasn't a soldier. He's a journalist. Okay. Yeah. He's a journalist. And they, um, the, but the, the Rangers and the Delta kind of have that friendly rivalry, you know, mm -hmm. big brother, little brother kind mm -hmm. of rivalry. And Captain Steele was known for kind of not liking the kind of cow, they call it cowboy mentality of the Delta Force. Right. They wear what they want. They let their hair grow long. They've got scruff. They wear their uniforms however they want. They don't salute each other. They call each other by their first names. Oh, right. You know, all they're <laughs> they're all sergeants. Most of them are like all sergeants. They're like the kind of the operators. And he's a captain. But the Delta rank structure is not quite I mean, they're a tier one, like almost you know, super, super secretive unit. Mm -hmm. They operate on their own rules, their own everything, outside of military you know, hierarchy and structure. So those things come into conflict very often anytime conventional and unconventional yes. forces conventional forces are, are together. The scene where the one soldier's making fun of Captain Steel, mm -hmm. that act, that actually happened okay. as, as well. Uh, not quite the same but And that soldier dies in real life. He's the first he's yes. the first soldier killed yeah. on the on the operation, yeah. Um that was he was a gunner, wasn't he? Yeah, he's one of the fifty gunners on the on the mm -hmm. hum uh, the Humvee column that was taking Blackburn back to mm -hmm. base. So yeah, what are what are some of your thoughts now? Compare you know history in the movie and and just kind of what you know about it now and and kind of the closing closing thoughts are. Um, I'm very impressed. I'm glad that I'm a bit more knowledgeable about history. Um. I loved it. I definitely like to watch it again. I think I'd like to watch it again, kind of knowing what really happens and being able to see the, compare the smaller things. Yeah, and, yeah. and also seeing the bits that I missed because there was so much happening. 
I was kind of struggling at points to really try and keep up with what was going on. Yeah, so I remember the first time I watched it in the movie theater, being lost at some points just because there's so much going on. Mm. There's so many characters. There's so many different the places. The military jargon is kind of alien to me as well. So it's yeah. not just it's not like there's a ton second, of. It's not like a language that I really understand. There's a ton of military jargon, and yeah. I, I love it because they don't, they don't exposition everything. They just do it. Mm -hmm. They just talk it. They just talk normal like a soldier, like soldiers do for the most part. And when they're on the radios and when they're talking back and forth, yes, you may not understand exactly what this word means or what this means, but you still understand. You know, audiences, mm -hmm. people aren't stupid. They can get it. You don't yeah, have to yeah, baby you them. You don't have to baby them through everything. Yeah, they may not know what, you know, Tango whiskey four come in. You know, yeah, all... and so it was more realistic that they weren't like having to sort of explain it for the audience sake it's... and just doing it as it would exactly. have been. Exactly. I this movie, I mean, it's it gets so many things right on so many levels. The all of the uniforms that they're wearing are almost exactly, almost exactly like what they were wearing mm -hmm. during that time. When you look at pictures of the task force or of the ranger guys, when you look at pictures of the Delta Force. They're wearing everything exactly right. Mm -hmm. The the tactics and how they move and handle their weapons is it's about as good as you can be in a movie. There so are they, they kind of were convincing real soldiers. Yes. So yeah. they they sent all the actors to boot camps with so the the guys playing Rangers went and did like a two week boot camp with yeah. the Rangers, and the guys playing Delta soldiers went and did a boot camp with yeah, cool. not the delta guys but they did it with the spe some special forces guys some green berets and so they know how to hold the weapon and they know how to wear their gear and they know how to you know mm -hmm. plus there were real military advisors and real soldiers on set during the entire thing to help make sure they got it all right mm -hmm. i mean things like from the little like coverings on their helmets are diff is a different camo pattern than the rest of their uniforms, right. which is accurate because they just hadn't gotten issued the new camo for their helmets. So they're wearing an older camo on their helmets. The way their name tags are is correct. Wow. Everything, the, wow. the the way they have everything duct taped. So you, who's in charge of all of that then? Like, is it is it Ridley Scott that's in charge of that? Or who, who's yes. in charge of making sure that they get all of those details completely right? I mean, Ridley Scott and his team, you know, yeah. I, I don't know all the inner workings of mm -hmm. the production team, the the costume team doing research, the military advisors working closely with all of them, the real guys that the actors talk to telling them, hey, this is how I wore my stuff. And then them telling the costume people, hey, he told because me that so often in movies, they don't get it accurate at all. Yeah. And so at, is it the director that's, you know, it doesn't matter. To him, I, I think so he's not the little details. Are extremely. I think this is just my personal opinion. I think the little details are extremely important to Ridley Scott in all of his movies, mm -hmm. from Gladiator to Kingdom of Heaven to all of it. This it's, is the first Ridley Scott one that we've done, isn't it? Or have we done one? I think this is the first Who one. Who did Gangs of New York? Martin Scorsese. Ah, uh, okay. So, when you watch his movies, sometimes historical accuracy gets pushed aside. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. But the little things, like the armor and the clothing mm -hmm. and all of those things are just nitpicky details. Mm -hmm. When you die, like Black Hawk Down's nitpickiness is not on like the small details. Those things are all accurate. Mm -hmm. The way the, 
the way the scopes are, like the all of the guns are period accurate. All of them. They're all carrying the M4s and the M16s the way they should and how they should with the right optics and the right pouches. Everything. Mm -hmm. Everything is, is exactly, exactly right. And the way they move tactically through the buildings. There's a couple times where in the background I can see one or two guys. I'm like, that's not right. Ooh, and you spotted the cameraman in that scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first time I've noticed that in the entire... The, I've watched this movie probably dozens of it times. It was when Ewan McGregor's character was shot, um, missed missed an RPG or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so... And he, when, he went when the, flying. When the Delta operators and Ewan, McGregor, Ewan McGregor's character are moving from Captain Steele's position to Crash Site 1, they're pinned down by a, 50, a guy on a 50 cal on, like, a truck. Mm-hmm. And one of the Delta operators says, like, I'm jammed. And then Ewan McGregor's character runs out in the street and fires his grenade launcher at it. And as he destroys the truck, the RPG comes down and he gets blown into a hole and covered in dirt. And the cameraman's just and, there on the left. Yep. And as you see all the dirt <laughs> raining down on him, right there off to the side by the building is the cameraman. And he's covered in a black and white blanket. And we paused it, and I was like, I've never seen that before. <laughs> and then we kind of wa we watched the scene again, and you can see the cameraman under the blanket, like, mo move the camera, and you can, like, see just the top of his top of his head. So, Ridley awesome. Scott, I caught it. <laughs> the details. <laughs> details. Other than, other than the cameraman, you got most of, the, most of the details. I think this won Best Academy Award for sound editing. And I can see why from the scenes where... The mini guns are going and the bullets are Ooh, raining yeah, down. Yeah, and when the, those guns that are being shot from the helicopters, that. Yeah, those are the, the mini guns. Okay, and yeah, that just sounds like a vibration. Yes, and the the slow motion of all of the bolts going back mm -hmm. and forth and the bullets coming out, mm, okay. the sounds of the helicopter. Did it win um, Academy Awards for anything else? Best movie? No, I don't think it. it I, yeah, I know it didn't win best best picture oh, or any any I acting what awards. Did win that year. I'm not sure. I have to go and look it up. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, it Black Hawk Down, I remember when I went and saw this in the movie theater, being like, oh my goodness, this movie is amazing. And I was still young enough that, like, I went home and played Black Hawk Down. I would put on my army gear and go into my backyard and play Black Hawk Down. And I would always play... This is a little morbid, but I would always play the two Delta snipers who died defending the helicopter. And we had like a little play set that I would pretend was the helicopter. Mm -hmm. And I would just like fight and then die in my backyard over and over oh, and, and over again. Hmm. Um, so guess, guess who won best movie, which movie won best movie that year? Uh, I, I yeah, I mean, it's, it's gonna. It's one of your favorite movies. <laughs> it's one of my favorite. You, well, you could, you would you can understand why Black Hawk Down didn't win up against this movie, and it's you've got one of the quotes in your little pre. In the Gladiator. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this was released in two thousand and one. So it would have been part of the two thousand and two Academy right. Awards because they're both those it. movies are both done by Ridley Scott. Beautiful Mind, another um, Russell Crowe movie. Yeah, is that? That's two thousand two. I, I understand Victor. that. 
He won, yeah, because he won back to back Best Academy Award for Best Actor. Is that Ridley Scott as well? Who directed A Beautiful Mind? Oh, hang on. Ron Howard. Okay. Another, another great director. Mm-hmm. We should do a Ron Howard movie. Apollo thirteen. He did Apollo thirteen. Mm-hmm. That's on our list. We'll we'll do that one eventually. But, but yeah, I mean, every, they they get a few things wrong, but overall, the main story is correct. Most of the characters do what they're supposed to do. I understand compiling some of the characters because there's so many soldiers doing all these things and you want to represent everything that was done, mm-hmm. but you don't want to have too many characters because you do already almost get lost in it at, at some points in time. Mm-hmm. So I don't fault it too, too much. Plus the Delta operators like to stay anonymous anyway. So changing their names and things like that, mm-hmm. I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're okay with that. But I mean, it gets high remarks as a mo- high marks as a movie. It gets high marks for historical accuracy, in my opinion. It gets high marks for technical accuracy. It's it's superb. I love it. I think, yeah, I, I can I watch it over and over and over again. I never get tired of Black Hawk Down. Anything else? Any little questions or things you noticed about the movie that you want to cover? Or anything like that? I think we've talked about everything and more. Yes. Yeah. No, we've we've thoroughly covered it. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I. I mean, there, all the little quotes and the people and stuff like that. I could. I could keep talking about all those things and joking around about this guy and what he said and all that. Another thing is, I love a good gear up scene. Mm-hmm. I love gear up scenes. Black Hawk Down has one of the best gear up scenes ever of all the soldiers loading up mm-hmm. all their equipment and and doing everything. So. Did they have some good gear gear up montage music? Yes. Okay, yeah, what good. were they playing? I can't remember. Um, I don't know the... I, I can, like, play it in my head. I just don't know what, what the song is. <laughs> what the song is called. I'll have to go look at the soundtrack. But Hans Zimmer did the soundtrack, so... Like, oh, it, amazing. Yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. It's great. So I think that's going to about, about do it for this episode of the Based on History podcast. And just want to say thanks to everybody once again for all the support. We're over 100 supporters on Instagram. It's great. And just keep listening, keep telling, spread the word. We greatly appreciate everything. So we'll see you next time on the Based on History podcast. Adios.